Okay, let's head to Hebrews chapter 12 uh, once again this morning. We're going to uh, concentrate more on verse 2 and 3. We've been in Hebrews chapter 12 for um, a few months now and looking at different aspects of it. But let's read it again this morning and then I want to look at one particular aspect of it. Hebrews 12, beginning at verse 1. I'll give you a moment to get there. It will come up on the screen behind me. If not, it says this, Therefore, Since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run, there's that word that we've been focusing on so much, let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. Verse 2 says, We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of a joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. And now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and you won't give up. So we've been looking at so many different aspects over the last few months of what it is to run this race. And if you're new this morning, if you've missed a few weeks, then all those messages are available. Uh, You can download the Family Church app to your mobile phone or you can go to family.church, our website. And there's a section there where you can listen again to every single message that's spoken in all of our different congregations. But today I want us to start looking at the statement that the writer of Hebrews uses. And he says the best way... The most effective way that we can run this race of faith that we've been speaking about is by keeping our eyes on Jesus. Other translations say looking unto Jesus or fixing our gaze on Jesus. And then he tells us the results of doing so. The end of verse 3, he says, and if you do this, you won't become weary or give up. So if we want to be the kind of people that we spoke of um, last week when we spoke on faithfulness, if we want to be the kind of people who don't just start this race of faith well, but end this race of faith well. Because remember last week we were talking about how it could be so easy to start your journey with Jesus, but how about the continuation of that journey with Jesus? If we want to be those kind of people, then we need to know what it is to keep our eyes on Jesus. I wonder, as we begin to think about these thoughts today, if you were to be honest with yourself this morning, where are your eyes currently at? As you're running this race of faith, what is it that has your focus right now? Because the writer of Hebrews doesn't say, look at ourselves. As we run this race of faith, do you know what? If you look at yourself, you're only going to end up in one of two places. You're going to end up in a place of pride or condemnation. Neither of those are good places to be. He doesn't say, look at the enemy. Because sometimes as Christians, we get so focused on the enemy. And the Bible says that we're to be aware of his strategies and to be wise concerning them but sometimes you speak with people and they're actually more obsessed with the devil than they are with Jesus the writer of Hebrews doesn't say keep your eyes on the enemy so you know what he's doing no he says focus your eyes on Jesus he doesn't say look at circumstances that will be up one moment down the next if you live your life according to circumstances your life will be a roller coaster where you're up and down and up and down he says look to Jesus look unto Jesus because he is the one who enables us to start the race in the first place for our salvation he is the one who is our pace setter 
Right, you know, when you're running a race and there's somebody out the front who is the pace setter, who is the example, if you like, who says, this is how fast we're running. This is how we're going to do this race. Jesus is the pace setter for each and every single one of us as we look to live this Christian race and live out this race. In him, we have everything we need. Jesus is the one that we need to look to when it's difficult to endure, the Bible says. Jesus is the one that we look to when we're burdened, when we're struggling in our faith. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And so over the next few weeks, that's exactly what we're going to do on our Sunday mornings together. We're going to be looking unto Jesus. We're going to be fixing our eyes on Jesus and looking at who Jesus is and what difference that makes to our life. Now to do that, the best place to go is not to Google. If you type in who is Jesus to Google, you get a lot of different answers. It's not um, to go to the pub and ask the loud mouth down the pub. What do you reckon about Jesus? Who's Jesus? You'll get a lot of different answers. But the best place to look at who Jesus is, is in the Word of God. But the Word of God reveals Jesus from beginning to end. It's not just like he's there in the gospel. He's there from the beginning to the end in the Word of God. And so today, we're going to look and start by looking at one of the things that Jesus says about himself. And we're going to explore this together. We're going to see why this is true. And then we're going to look at what difference it makes to our lives. So John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Just turn your Bibles there. and We're just going to lay the foundation. John chapter 14. And the context um, for this is that Jesus um, isn't far away from the cross now. And he knows what lays before him. He knows that he's about to be tried and tested and arrested and ultimately would die of his death. And so in this moment of almost pastoral care, in this moment of looking at his disciples, this mismatch of different guys who had journeyed with him through these three years, he looks at them and he offers them almost these words of comfort. John chapter 14 says, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's house. If this were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? Now when everything is ready, I will come and get you, so you will always be with me where I am. And then he says this, And you know the way to where I am going. Now here's the thing, Jesus said that, but the disciples didn't know where he was going. The disciples didn't know the route to that. Even though he told them many times, this is what's going to happen. Read the Gospels. He's like, okay, let's go through this one more time. He explains to them over and over what's going to happen. But in this moment, they're looking, they're thinking, we actually don't know the way. And so it's left down to Thomas. And Thomas, when you read the Bible, often gets a hard rap. He's known as Doubting Thomas. You would have no doubt heard of him as Doubting Thomas. And so the one thing that he did wrong is attached to him and he's his label for the rest of his life. But actually, I like Thomas. Because here's the thing about Thomas. He says what everybody else is thinking, right? You, some of you are that kind of person. Some of you know that kind of person. That everybody's looking at, and they're thinking something, but they're almost too polite to say it. Or they're thinking something, but they're worried about how it's going to come across. And then you get somebody who steps up and says, yeah, but really, is that the case? Or what do you mean by that? And that's what Thomas is. And I like Thomas. I see myself in Thomas. And so Thomas in this moment thinks, says what everybody else is thinking. And he gets to rap for it. Just like when um, he doubted. There were other disciples, no doubt, who were in that moment who were thinking, what on earth is going on? Yet Thomas was the one brave enough to say it. And then here we are, 2,000 years ago, labeling him as doubting Thomas. I mean, the hard pressure gets. And so here we are in verse 5. And he says, um, no, we don't know, Lord. 
I love this picture. You've got to colour in the Bible when you read it. Sometimes people read the Bible, it's just... Imagine this moment where Jesus said, and you all know where I'm going, and you know the way, and they're all going, yeah, I don't know. And, and Thomas steps forward and goes, no, don't have a clue. Sorry, Jesus, don't have a scooby-doo what you're talking about in this I have no understanding. He said, we have no idea where you were going. Imagine, no, we have no idea. I knew where he was going. Ditch Thomas in this moment. We have no idea where you are going, so how can we know the way? It's a fair question. Thomas says, how can we actually know the way to where you're going? How can we get to God? Essentially, he's asking, what are the directions, Jesus, to get to where you are going? Now, directions are a funny thing, aren't they? We are now in this age where we have sat-navs and computers that tell us exactly where we need to go. But all of us remember the age before the sat-nav. All of us remember the time of pouring over a map before you actually went somewhere. Or if you were really high tech, as we got a little bit more modern, you'd print off an AA route planner off the internet and have all the different directions. But even at some points, that even failed you. And so you would have these moments where you'd put down the window and ask a local how to get to where it was you were trying to go. And you all had these experiences where you've put down the window and you've asked somebody and actually it's left you even more confused than when you began. Once they've told you the history of a post office that you need to turn the third left out or whatever it might be. Other times you put down the window and you ask the question and you've had this moment where you're nodding away and you're smiling and they're telling you everything and it gets towards the end and you suddenly realize you haven't been listening to a word that they've been saying or taking it in. And so now you're left with this option of where do I go and how do I respond to this moment. Thank God for sat-navs today, even though they still take you up the wrong way, up a one-way road, or ask you to cross a local pond or whatever it might be. But he asks, what are the directions? And here's Jesus' answer. And the direction he gives are pretty simple, very easy to follow. Verse 6, Jesus told them, I am the way. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus makes it pretty clear that the way to God is through him. Peter in Acts chapter 4 verse 12, speaking of Jesus, says the exact same thing. He says, there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. You see, when Jesus said the statement, I am the way, the, the Bible translation of it in the Greek was the Greek word hodos, which means road. So basically, Jesus in this moment was saying, I am the road to travel. I am the road to God. Now, here's why I want to talk about this today, and here's why this statement is so shocking to so many, and here's why I want us to know why this is true, so that we can communicate it effectively. Because that statement is biblically correct, but it's politically incorrect. But this society today would want to say, no, 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 there can't only be one way to God. A God of love surely wouldn't make it that there's only one way to him. And so just like there might be different ways for you to get home from here today, there's this understanding that there must be different ways to get to God. And so I want us to dive into this statement. I want us to see why this is true and what difference it can make to us. So let's take a moment to first look at some of the other thoughts that are out there concerning the way to our Heavenly Father. And I want to do this in the form of road signs that you'll recognize that are true of how people relate to God. Now the first one is this sign, which is the merge sign that's going to come up in a moment. 
This thought of two lanes or three or four lanes all coming into one destination. And so we end up with this moment where you have drivers coming like a lunatic down the far outside lane, slamming on their brakes and then coming in just at the last moment. You've had experience of some of those people. Some of you are those people, but we'll leave it there for you to work out which one you are. But this, this thought of all these different lanes coming into one. And do you know what? There's a thought out there today that it doesn't matter what you believe, it doesn't matter which God you follow, which religion or faith you have, it will all eventually lead to the same place. This politically correct idea of religious pluralism, posh word, but all it simply means is this, that all religions are equal and they all lead to God. As long as you're sincere, you'll end up in the right place. And so we end up with a spiritual buffet. How many of you like buffets? in terms of food. A few weeks ago when we had our global Sunday and we had all the food out here, it's brilliant. I'll have a bit of that and a little bit of that. Or I'll have a bit more of that. I'll have a bit of this on my plate. I'll have a, and that's how people are today when it comes to God. I'll take a bit of Buddhism and I have a slice of Hinduism and I'll sprinkle it with some angel stuff over here and I'll have a little bit of Christianity. Could you just put a bit of new age on my plate because it all ends up in the same place. Now here's my issue with this, that if this is true, if it's true that all roads lead to the same God, then the issue I have with that is that this God that we love and we serve doesn't seem to know what he's saying from one day to the next. Let me give you a few examples. On the one hand, God tells the Islamic prophet Muhammad that everyone needs to take a pilgrimage to Mecca at least once in their life. Yet he tells us as Christians that we can worship him wherever we are. God tells Christians, you can eat meat, or you don't have to eat meat. It's up to you. He tells Hindus that it's immoral to eat meat. If all roads lead to the same God, why do the rules change from one day to the next? How about issues of men and women? Some faiths say it's okay for men to dominate women and to treat them as second-class citizens, yet the Bible says we should put others before ourselves. The Bible says that we should love our wives' husbands like Christ loved the church. How about the afterlife? Some religions teach that you die and then that's it. There's, there's nothing else. Others teach that there's this, this kind of nirvana. Some teach that there's reincarnation, that you'll come back as a dog or a cat or a bird or whatever you come back as. There's different levels of heaven or there's heaven and there's hell. And so the religions don't even agree on what happens after death. And yet a lot of people that you are doing life with, a lot of people that we encounter, choose to believe that it doesn't matter what you believe, you will ultimately end up in the same place. Jesus says, I am the way. Another sign that people use is this sign that you come across when there's roadworks. Men at work sign. Women at work sign. Whatever you want. People at work sign. Men at work sign. And so people follow the sign in an attempt to get to God. And, and there's many people that think if I work enough and I do enough good things and I do more good things than I do bad things and if I give money to charity and I'm a nice person and I'm generous to my neighbours and I don't fall out with anyone, if I do more good than bad, then ho ultimately, hopefully, it will get me right with God. Now here's where Jesus' statement comes in and says it's not about what you do, it's about what I've done. That this is what separates out being a follower of Jesus and following the Christian faith from every other form of religion and every other faith. There's two words that separates out the two. Do and done. 
that every other faith will tell you you have to do something in order to get to God, where Christianity says through Jesus, it's already been done for us. And so some people will say you have to pray five times a day at this time. Uh, or other people will say you have to eat certain foods or not eat certain foods. You have to do this, you have to do that. And then once we've done all of that, we may, may, may just be good enough to find our way to God. Listen, God's word says this, that we are saved not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus has done for us. We are saved not through trying harder, but we are saved by acknowledging there's nothing I can do and I need a savior. Amen? Titus 3, starting at verse 4, puts it this way. But when God our savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us. Listen to this, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins. He gave us a brand new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior. Because of his grace, he declared us righteous and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. The day that I was saved, the day that you were saved, the day that you began your relationship with Jesus, it was nothing to do with what we had done, but it was all because of God's mercy and God's grace. That our trying to be good enough was, was pointless. Our works are nothing because God has done it all for us. It's a little bit like the picture that's been used before, that if you picture when my free uh, daughters were little and toddler age and you, you think about a child that age and so often they come up to their parent and what do they do? They, they try to reach up, don't they? And so they're there and they're reaching up but reality is if a parent just stands there and looks down there's no way that that child is going to reach up. They can strain all they like. They can put in as much effort as they like. They are not going to reach that parent. That is the form of, of religion and faith that so many people are living by. They're straining. They're trying. They're doing everything they can and with good hearts to try and reach this God that they are so desperate to really know about. But imagine that same picture and the father of a parent stoops down and picks up the child. That is the message of the gospel. That our God, through the person of Jesus Christ, when we couldn't get to him, came down and lifted us up through what he has done. And our role is just the acceptance of what Jesus has done for us. God came down. Jesus is the way to God. You know, this is a truth that not only do we need to know for other people, but it's the truth we need to know for ourselves. That as we run this race of faith, as I said last week, it can be so easy to start off well. But how about after a few months, after a few years, how easy is it for us to get back into religion? How easy is it for us to get back into what we do? And have I done enough of this? And have I done enough of that? When actually the Bible says this, that there's nothing you can do that would leave you in a better place. There's nothing that you can do that would leave you in a worse place. But it's all about what Jesus Christ has done for you. And out of that, we live a life that's honoring to him. We please God for our faith, not our performance. So Jesus says the merge sign, it doesn't work for the men at work sign. It's pointless. And then there's another sign. And it's this one. The wrong way sign. The wrong way sign. Now that's not popular in our culture to say that because we now today live in a my truth world. So I'll determine what truth is and that is what truth is. We live in a my truth world. How do we speak the gospel in a my truth world? The thing is, 
it's not easy to tell people that maybe their way isn't right because they're only going that way because they believe it is. Right? You don't like being told that you're going the wrong way. That's why sat-navs are great until they tell you you've gone the wrong way even though they've led you a certain way. You had experience of that where they lead you down a certain road and then actually they're like, oh, actually, I got it wrong, so I'm going to put the blame on the driver. Uh, turn around when possible. You're like, what? I just followed exactly what you said. And if you notice the sat-navs then get passive-aggressive, but if you think, oh, just, you know, this isn't safe to turn around here, I'll just go up there and then turn around, they kind of almost get, maybe it's just me, but they sound like they get more irritated. No, 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 I said turn around when possible. I'm getting there. But we don't like being told when we're going the wrong way. And society today, for me to say that God's way is right and somebody else's way is wrong, it's viewed as intolerant. But until recently, tolerance used to say this, that I can value somebody and I can fully 100% accept somebody even without agreeing with their beliefs and their behavior. Now that's what I see of Jesus. Read the Gospels. Jesus was a Jewish man who went around and he spoke freely and respectfully to a Samaritan woman. It was a massive no-no. You didn't do that kind of stuff. You read on, he ate with tax collectors. He touched physically. He touched lepers. He healed the daughter of a Gentile woman. Again, as a Jewish man, you don't do that kind of thing. He came to the rescue of a woman caught in the very act of adultery. Now at that time, this kind of tolerance was unthinkable. You just did not do this kind of thing. But here's the reality. Jesus never compromised. Jesus never sacrificed truth for tolerance. Think about the woman caught in adultery. He goes, he says, does anyone condemn you? No, I don't condemn you either. Now what does he say next? Now go and sin no more. He didn't say, well, hey, I've got you up, go on, go and live exactly as you were living before. He said, no, no, I don't condemn you, but there's got to be a change here for your future. You see, Jesus was grace and truth. So often people are at either end of a spectrum. All judgment, no love. Well, you're this and you're that and you shouldn't be doing it. But other times people are at the other end of a spectrum where they show love and they show acceptance, but to the point of compromising truth from the word of God. We've got to be people who approach others with grace, but we lead people into the truth of the gospel. That is discipleship. Because if it's true, if it's true that there's only one way to the Father, and that is through Jesus, then we must speak up. And we must be found doing something about it because actually it's the only loving thing to do. And so Jesus answering the question of Thomas, I I don't know the way, how do we get there? He says this is the way and he gives this sign. He says there is only one way. There's only one way and that's through me, Jesus says, that's through me. And I know modern society doesn't like that too much. That for you to say that Jesus is the way to God, that can mean that you get labeled as narrow-minded as arrogant, as ignorant, as, as somebody who's exclusive. In fact, the popular opinion today is, well, well, maybe, just maybe, if Jesus was around today, then he would have a different message. Because he was a, love, he was a God of love, and so maybe it would be different, because there's so many different... Maybe it would be more like the merge sign. And that's what people believe. But here's what we've got to understand, that actually in Jesus' day it was no different. 
In fact, in Jesus' day, arguably, there were more faiths. There were more religions. There were different, more different beliefs. Read Acts chapter 17. There's a moment where the Apostle Paul goes into the city and, and he's looking around and he's bemused by all these different worshipping and gods that they have. And he says in Acts chapter 17 that he finds an altar to an unknown God. I mean, they believe so much stuff that they covered themselves. It's like an insurance scheme. Just in case all our gods aren't true, then we'll set up an altar to actually an unknown God that nobody actually really knows about, just in case he's the one as well. This is a society that they were in. And in that culture, in that society that were worshipping all kinds of gods, that had Judaism and local cults and mystery religions and different philosophies and people worshipping the Roman emperor and the Roman empire, Jesus stands he says, I am the only way. And more than that, he was willing to die for this claim. Ephesians 2 verses 8 to 9 says, God saved you. By his grace, when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation, listen to this. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. 2,000 years ago, Jesus stood up in this culture and he said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's a massive statement. But it's true. And the writer of Hebrews says, this is the Jesus that we look to. This is the Jesus at the very center of the gospel that as we run this race of faith, we must focus our eyes upon. So what's our response to this? Let's bring this in for a close. Helen, you can come up. What's our response to this? And this is a question that actually we grappled with at the AOG conference recently. That if we're to look to Jesus as the author and the finisher of our faith, if we're to look to Jesus as we run this race, then there's a few things that we need to make sure that he's central to. The first thing is this, that we need to make sure that Jesus is central to our gospel. See, as a, as a church and as individuals, we need to realize that there's a lost and dying generation all around us. And people need Jesus to be more than a friend. They need a saviour. See, the gospel message today has been diluted down to Jesus will be your friend. Yes, he's a friend. He sits closer than a brother. But he's more than that. He's a saviour. And so often we've taught in modern Christianity this gospel that says, do you know what? Jesus will come into your life. Jesus will be an addition to your life. No, we need to preach a real gospel that isn't just Jesus comes to you, but our life goes into Jesus. So when we preach the gospel, when we share the truth with our hairdresser or our friend, our neighbor, whatever it might be as we speak as a church community, we need to do that knowing that the gospel isn't about just good vibes, nice feelings. Because otherwise we're leading people down the wrong path. It's not about behavior modification, trying to be a good person because people just get tired of trying to be good. Jesus must be central to our gospel. As a result of that, we also need to make sure that Jesus is central to our church. Family church haven't. Jesus must be central to our church. It's not about me. It's not about Kirsty. It's not about Pastor Andy. It's not about any. Jesus is central to our church. See, we aren't co-laboring with Christ to build a social club. There's many great social clubs in haven't that you could join. This is not a social club. 
This isn't a community interest group that has a, a community building that we're doing up and reaching out and doing community initiatives. Now listen, we thank God for the building. We'll make sure it's looked after. We'll reach out to our community. But that isn't what we are. We are the church of Jesus Christ. And we need to realize that actually family church haven't. I hope that we're a bunch of nice people. I hope that we have good reputation in the community. But I also hope that we know this, that family church can't change anyone's life. But Jesus can. And in a world that today is a selfie generation, in a world that constantly says, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. Oh, we'll have a, a program that says, look at me, look at me. We'll, we'll have this that says, look at me, look at me. We'll, we'll make phones where you can take more photos of yourself and the stuff that's actually going on around you. We are a selfie generation. And in that generation, in that world, we need to remember that John the Baptist didn't say, look at me. He said, look at him. Look at Jesus. The writer of Hebrews didn't say, look at me. The writer of Hebrews says, look at him. Because in our own strength, we can't help anyone but we know the one who can. And so as our eyes are fixed on Jesus, we need to make sure that those that we do life with, we help them to take their eyes off themselves, off their distractions, off the circumstances of life, off financial crisis, off gas bills, and place their eyes on Jesus. We've got to make sure that Jesus is central to our worship. See, a common misconception in the church today is this, that worship is about us how I feel, whether I like the song. I don't like that song as much as I like that. Worship isn't about whether we like the song or not. Worship isn't about us. It isn't about whether we feel good. Listen, worship is not about our enjoyment. It's about the exaltation of Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. The, when we're in worship, it will change us. We will feel great because do you know what? The Bible says that God inhabits the praises of his people. The Bible says that there's joy in the presence of God. So when we're in the presence of God and our eyes are fixed on Jesus, of course we'll feel great. Of course we'll feel different. But the primary motivation isn't this, that worship isn't to get. Worship is to give to the one who deserves it. Because you know what? When you read your Bible, you see this. But the worship of Jesus isn't an option. It's an obligation. That's not me saying The Bible says that the worship of Jesus is an obligation. In our worship, we must keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and finally in our race Jesus must be central to our race I want to encourage you today you know what as you're running this race maybe there's all sorts of stuff going on in your life right now maybe you're struggling right now and you're looking to yourself to try and fix or you're looking to others or or maybe there's just such a fear upon your life because you're looking to the news and you're seeing headline after headline after headline of this war and this financial difficulties and all of this kind of stuff. Maybe you're looking at your job and you're thinking there's redundancy around the corner. Maybe you're looking here, there and everywhere. And the writer of Hebrews says, stop as you run this race. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And as you do, you won't grow weary and you won't give up. But you will finish this race effectively let's just close our eyes this morning after the service as I said we're going to head into the garden and encourage you to stick around but I just want to have this moment where we just pray and there's a couple of things I want to do firstly I want to just invite anybody who's never said Jesus I, I want 
to know the way. I believe that you are the way. If somebody's never done that or they've wandered away from Jesus and they've said, today I want to come home, I want to make my comeback today, then we're going to give you an opportunity to do that. But also, I want to pray for each and every single one of us in this moment. But no matter what you are journeying through in your life right now, your eyes are going to be fixed on Jesus. So here's what I want us to do. Firstly, I want us to pray a prayer. And I'm going to encourage you just to repeat this prayer after me so that those who maybe are saying this for the very first time feel comfortable doing so in this moment. Heavenly Father, I want to be in relationship with you. And I believe what Jesus said. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. Please forgive my past. I want to stop trying to do it myself. And I believe in you, Jesus. And I accept what you've done for me. Wash me clean and make me brand new. I give you my future. Amen. Just keep your eyes closed. Listen, if you prayed that prayer today for the very first time or you're coming back into relationship with God today, then as we finish the service in a moment and people go and get their kids and everything like that, I want to just encourage you to come and speak to somebody. To, to a couple called Mark and Glennis and they'll just be hovering around the front and if you say do you know what I truly meant that decision I prayed that prayer and I meant it for the very first time but then just go and speak to them they're great people and they'll just help you in this moment to understand what it is you've prayed and, and to give you some tools that are going to help you on this journey but I also want to pray for each and every single one of us in this room in this moment Heavenly Father thank you for your word Thank you that your word challenges us and changes us and inspires us to be more like you. And Jesus, I thank you that you stood in this world and said, I am the way, the truth and the life. You didn't leave us wandering or questioning. You've made it clear to us. So Lord, I thank you that as we go into different arenas of our lives and interact with different people, that we would be able to speak this message with grace, not with judgment, with love, with truth. And that the very example of our lives would be something that draws people to you. But Lord, over every single life in this place where there are distractions, where there are difficulties, where there are trials, I pray that people would focus their gaze on you and keep looking at you, Jesus, that you are our hope and you are our strength in these moments, we pray. Lord, be with us as we leave this place. Lord, I just thank you for a blessing upon your people this morning. May they be blessed in their coming and their going. May everything they put their hands to in these next seven, six, seven days be blessed until we meet again in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. Come on, let's go change the world.